Jimmy was a bit impatient with pessimistic talk, and he insisted that everyone communicate everything in their family uh, optimistically. So one day his wife had to call him about their new car. And she said, uh, you know that new car we've got? The, uh, well, the airbags work very well. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know what happened. Um, I've got far more optimism in that, that you can win in spiritual warfare. You can. If you'll take up the shield of faith and the other pieces of the armor of God. With that, if you'll look in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, we will study this morning the armor of uh, of God, specifically the shield of uh, faith. Reminds me of a hunter that was on the African plain one time, and uh, he was actually near a stand of trees, not just in the plain. And he saw a bird make a loud racket and land at her nest. And he saw some movement in the nest from where he was seated and um, looked a little more carefully and saw there were some small birds, uh, new baby birds in the nest. And the reason this particular bird was making a lot of racket is that there was a snake slithering up the tree headed for the nest. Well, the mother bird flew away after a while and found a leaf and flew back and placed the leaf on top of the nest. The snake got there and he bent back, coiled, ready to strike, and looked and just slithered off without doing any injury to those in the nest. The hunter was confused. And he told some of his African hosts about this, and they laughed as if the bird had gotten some kind of victory. And he asked them to explain, and what the bird had done is that the bird had gone and found a leaf that was poisonous to this particular snake. In other words, she found a shield to cover her nest. God has given you something much more substantial than a leaf to protect you from the fiery darts or the fiery arrows that Satan sends your way. The particular word used here in Ephesians uh, chapter 6 for the shield of faith is not the one that was the size of a frisbee. Some Roman soldiers had that. Uh, it was more the shield that was about the size of a door, even larger than the one that is on display on the platform. And it was usually covered in leather that was oftentimes soaked in water because enemy soldiers would take their arrows uh, they would dip them in pitch, set them afire, and fire them through the air, and they would catch them with the shields. And these particular shields would extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy army. And that is what Paul has in mind in Ephesians chapter 6, verse number 16. And if you'll read there with me, we'll look at our textual basis for this. He says here, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. You can be victorious in spiritual warfare against demons whenever you use field of faith like a shield. And that's what Paul is encouraging here. Walking by faith will win for you spiritual warfare. Now, you've noticed what we've done through this text over the weeks. <coughs> we've taken truth and we've looked at the book of Ephesians for what it says about truth. <coughs> Everything preceding the Arm, the armor of God passage here in Ephesians 6. So we looked at truth in chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 because we are to put on the belt of truth in verse number 14. But then the breastplate of righteousness. Well, what does Ephesians say about righteousness prior to this reference in chapters 1 through 5? 
And then the gospel of peace. What does the Scripture say about the gospel in the preceding five chapters? Well, this morning we're going to look at that when it comes to faith. What does the book of Ephesians have to say about faith? And that's Paul's understanding of the shield of faith here in this text. And what he says is, is that faith will shield you from fiery arrows of the evil one and his demonic hosts. And there are several fiery arrows against which um, faith protects you. One is disinterest in intercession. And let me remind you, at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you to make a commitment to fast and pray for a pastoral need that I'm aware of. And so please keep that in mind, that after the invitation, we'll do that. Dr. Fish, my evangelism professor, and really, I'm I don't tell too many people this, but I got to be his prayer partner the last two years of his life when I was at Southwestern. He used to say that we advance the kingdom of God in proportion to the time that we spend on our knees. And I would say, alternatively, we throw down and damage the kingdom of darkness in proportion to the time that we spend on our knees. And that's why the poet wrote uh, that wonderful piece where he says, Satan trembles when he sees even the weakest saint upon his knees. We've got to be interested in intercession. What is intercession? Intercession is simply an approach to prayer where you pray for other people. Jesus did that on the cross when he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the thief next to him was saved. The centurion at the foot of the cross was saved. And 50 days later on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 were saved. And the Lord heard his prayer. Jesus set the model for intercession. Now, intercession is going to bring about an awful lot of victory if we will pray for one another. What demons want us to do is either not pray or to pray uh, superficially or not to pray from our heart or just merely to pray for ourselves. And then they would prefer that we pray in fear all the time or that we're distracted in prayer or that we pay too much attention and feel guilty for the ugly thoughts that come into our mind while we pray. It's rather common for Christians to have some of the most ugly thoughts they could possibly have, the most angry and bitter thoughts, the most nasty thoughts in prayer. Well, why do you think that is? Well, you know why that is. Demons are seeking to interfere with your prayer life. And so this is what they want. But if Paul has something in mind different back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, where he connects faith and prayer, and it's really interesting how he does it here. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so the faith of the Ephesian Christians prompted the intercessory prayers of Paul. Now, why is that? Why is it that their faith moved him to pray for them? Because when someone trusts the Lord, they become a greater receptacle for the blessing of God. They're already connected to him. They already trust him. They've, always, they've already made some progress in their walk with Him, and so we are much more likely to see progress in the life of someone who trusts Christ um, when we pray for them and we intercede for them. So pray for pastor, pray for staff, pray for the children and our, uh, our students in our ministry, pray for one another, give yourself to that. And you may be thinking, wow, if I pray for all of these people, I'm going to be praying a whole lot. You got it. You've got it. 
What most of us need to do is do a face plant in the Bible and pray according to this book and stay there until our heart is satisfied in God and God releases us. We do need to give much more of our time and heart and soul to prayer. And so their faith then, the faith of those you pray for and intercede for, can douse the fiery arrows of disinterest in intercession. In other words, you're encouraged in prayer because they trust the Lord. But there's a second thing. Uh, faith will shield you from the fiery arrows of delusion about works. Now look at verses 8 and 9. It reminds me about March 18, 1990, when Michael Jordan of the Chicago Bulls uh, scored more points in the game than he ever had before. He scored 69 points in a game. And there was a uh, rookie center, Stacy King, who played a little bit of the game towards the end and shot one free throw and scored one point. And Michael was interviewed after the game, and so was Stacy. And Stacy said, I will always remember this night as the night that Michael and I combined for 70 points. <laughs> May I assure you, when it comes to your salvation, you didn't even contribute one point. Jesus scored them all. Now, you've repented and placed faith in Him, but that's not a work and that's not a merit. Oh, no, the Bible nowhere assumes that. Uh, but that's uh, all God has called for. You've not even contributed one point to being made right with God, and yet the whole world is terribly, terribly deluded. Demons want us to have a false sense of security in our virtue and in our works. A recent LifeWay survey, in fact, found that 69% of teenagers believe that they'll go to heaven. And 60% of them believe they'll go to heaven because of their kindness and 60% because of their religious practice. Only 28% say Jesus and Jesus alone. Well, friends, I, 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 that really worries me, and let me tell you why. The entire book of Romans and the entire book of Galatians was written to dispel those notions. And if we believe Jesus plus something equals heaven, then we believe a false gospel. That's not what God yielded. And when I talk to someone like that, I, I, I assume I'm talking to someone who's religious but is lost and has never been born again. Got to. Because if we, if we really were born again, we would embrace the truth. We would know the truth of the gospel. If you don't know the truth of the gospel, then how, how are you saved? Only 28% of teenagers, of the 69% that they're going to heaven, I believe they're going to heaven, then... Trust Jesus only. It reminds me of a survey I was taking in Augusta, Georgia a number of years ago. We were out doing some witnessing and uh, spoke to this one lady and asked her in her opinion, what do you believe it takes to have eternal life and go to heaven when you die? It was like the fourth uh, question on our survey. Did this with a lot of folks. And by the way, let me say, uh, street evangelism, door-to-door -door evangelism, people are remarkably warm and remarkably receptive. The only people against it usually are Christians who've never done it. I've never found a lost person against it. I've never found a Christian who does it that's against it. And we were talking to this lady, and we said, Now, in your opinion, what does it take to go to heaven when you die? And she gave some works answers plus Jesus. And then I asked her the question I uh, ask uh, frequently. And I said, Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. I ask this question of everyone. I said, Let's imagine that today the worst thing in the world were to happen, and your heart was to stop beating. And you were to stand before God this evening, and God was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? By the way, I've never found a lost person 
ever offended by that question or a Christian person. Only Christians who don't witness are bothered by that. And I said, now, if you were to stand before God and he was to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And she said, well, I've led the choir at my church, the children's choirs, and I'm there all the time. And she went on with a bunch of her works. And that is specifically what chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 were written to overthrow. Now look with me in verses 8 and 9 of uh, chapter 2. Look what Paul says. For by grace, now there are seven statements here in verses 8, 9, and 10 that overthrow the notion that we contribute to our salvation. Look what it says. For by grace have you been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest like the woman we were interviewing, anyone should boast. Boasting in leading a choir, boasting in church attendance, boasting in personal faithfulness, most of which is always exaggerated by religious people. Let's go on. For we are His workmanship, created not by our own virtue, not by our own efforts, but created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, long before we ever showed up on the earth, before we could ever contribute good works or virtue, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Seven statements that thunder, we are not saved by personal virtue or works, therefore we should not be deluded about our virtue or works. And we certainly shouldn't boast that our hope and security of reaching heaven and being saved has anything to do with our behavior. Oh no, we should not be deluded at that point. So at the end of the message, we're going to give you the opportunity when we sing together a song to run from confidence in yourself and run to Christ and Christ alone. Only Jesus Christ can save. Only He has done a work that's good enough. All the rest are as filthy rags, Isaiah said. But the work that Jesus Christ accomplished at the cross and in the resurrection pleases God, and it is the only work that pleases God. And if you will run and reject any notion that your works and virtue contribute to being made right with God, and you trust the cross and resurrection alone, God will accept you with the same love and favor He accepts His Son with. And that's our only hope. So delusion about works. And then faith will do this. Faith will shield you from the fiery arrows about doubt about access. Chapter 3, verse 12. Reminds me of Kayla. She was an only child. And she said, you know, the only problem, after she was reprimanded, the only problem with being an only child is that you get blamed for everything you do. You know, if there are two or three or four uh, more uh, children or five kids in a family, it's sometimes in question about who's doing what. But when you're the only child, you're it. And that's what Kayla's experiencing. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, the Scripture defines Satan as the accuser of the brethren. One of his hobbies is to accuse others and to emphasize and to exaggerate their filthiness before God so as to discourage them from going before God. God. And that's what faith will help you overcome. Demons want you to doubt that you can reach God because of your sins. Well, my goodness, if that's it, no one's reaching God. There's no hope then. But the Scripture says something different in chapter 3, verses um, 12 and 13. Look here with me. Speaking of Jesus, in Him we have... Now watch the words He piles on top of each other. In Christ, we have boldness 
and access with confidence through faith in Him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart. Boldness, access, confidence. I mean, you can't say it any more clearly. No matter what you've done, no matter how you've embarrassed yourself, no matter how many times you failed, if you're in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has purchased access to the Father and there's no one big enough to take it away. When Jesus Christ bled and when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He forever permanently sealed, sanctified, and secured your access to God the Father and no one can keep you from that but yourself. And so you do not judge. Listen, you do not judge your access to Him on the basis of your guilty feelings. You do not, you do not judge your access to Him on the basis of your regrets. You do not judge your access to Him on the basis of your performance. Listen, your performance will never ever meet the high holy standard God does. That's why God transfers Jesus' performance to you. So you can reach Him, and that's His plan. Uh, you, you'll, you'll, never, you'll never become holy enough to reach God. You've got to have it purchased for you and give it as a gift, and thank God Jesus Christ has done it. By the way, that little step there was the first step in a dance move. I've reconsidered, by the way. But if some of you can raise your hands, I, I can lift my feet. But the point is, is that Jesus Christ has purchased permanent access forever to God the Father. In other words, as long as Jesus is good with the Father, you are too. And you can reach Him. So the shield of faith will shield you from fiery arrows of disinterest and delusion and doubt. But then the shield of faith will shield you from discomfort with Christ. Chapter 3, verse 17. Now, as you're turning there, let me uh, remind you of Revelation 3.20. Jesus makes a great invitation to, lost, to the lost world, especially religiously lost people. To the church at Laodicea, much of which did not know him, I don't believe, says, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus Christ, when we receive Him as Lord and Savior, actually takes up residence in our hearts and lives. Now, since the days of Charles Ryrie and his Ryrie Study Bible back in the 70s, people have complained that that text is not about evangelism and that it's written to a church. Well, yeah, but it's written to lost church members. Those Laodiceans were clowns. In many ways, they weren't hot or cold. They were lukewarm, which references some of the lukewarm mineral water and some of the springs there that was very nauseous. And Jesus said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. He doesn't do that to Christians. So the Laodiceans were lost, and Jesus gives them an evangelistic invitation. And chapter 3, verse 20, and says, If you'll open up to me, I will enter into the home of your heart, and I will turn it into a palace from which I reign and rule. Now, salvation is more than Jesus coming into your heart, but it's not less. Jesus actually comes to live inside your heart and life. He takes up residence in the believing person who trusts Him alone for salvation. And there He lives and turns your life and turns your heart and enters into a palace fit for the King. And that's what He's referencing in verse number 17. Now look there with me in chapter 3. Paul is praying that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That means when you place faith in Jesus Christ, He begins to dwell in your heart. But He's talking to Christians here in this text, unlike Revelation 
He's saying, Jesus, I want Jesus to feel comfortable at home with you. The word may dwell in verse 17 is preceded by the Greek preposition kata. And it intensifies the verb to dwell. And so we don't want Jesus merely being a guest in your home. We want Jesus to be kata home, or to translate it literally in the English, we want Jesus to be down home in your heart. Now there's home, and then there's down home, isn't there? There's down home. Many of my members in Alabama who were from South Alabama used to say when they'd go home for reunions and homecomings, they would say, we're going down home. That's the place of memory. That's the place of old joys. That's the place of uh, long time, decades old acceptance and embrace on the part of family, friends, and community. Hey, you know something? Jesus not only wants to live in you, Jesus wants to be down home and comfortable there. And yet, what too many have done is that they have received Christ into their hearts and lives, and they've said, Jesus, you can have this place in the home. You can have a bedroom, but uh, Jesus, the kitchen is off limits where my appetites are. And the living room where my entertainments are, are off limits. And this room and that room, in other words, many have confined Jesus to just one room in the house, and Jesus wants it all, otherwise he's uncomfortable. Jesus needs to be a perfectly comfortable resident, not guest, but resident in our hearts and lives. And here's how. When we trust him enough to give him access to it all, even the safe, even the closet that's uh, locked and the one with skeletons in it. We've got to give him all and trust him enough. If we don't, we remain vulnerable to demonic attack. But when we do, he is Lord over all. And so faith will help us overcome the, sh the fiery arrows of discomfort with Christ. And then faith will help us overcome the fiery arrows of division over doctrine. Chapter 4, verse 5 and 13. I keep up with the uh, mission developments of other denominations. I happened to study one in my dissertation, and I was terribly disappointed this past week when this denom denomination began to have a conversation about hiring as missionaries and staff those who disobey the sexual moral behavior standards of the Scripture. And they're having that conversation now. Now, two years ago, when we embraced the Baptist faith, the message is our doctrinal statement. We had a conversation. This conversation in this denomination has lasted uh, 12 to 18 months. Ours lasted five minutes because it's already settled in the Word of God. There's no need for a conversation. Conversation is usually a sneaky way to make everyone feel comfortable with disobedience. And you find a way forward. I even had one pastor tell me, we're going to do what the Holy Spirit leads us to do. Ironically using the word holy. Holy. Pure. In order to justify misbehavior sexually. My thought is, my goodness, God has settled these issues in His Word. And the debate that takes place in churches is thoroughly unnecessary. When we are surrendered to the Lord, some issues are thoroughly settled. Not only about sexual behavior, but also about doctrinal and theological standards. Look at chapter, um, chapter 4, verses 5 and 13. Look what he says there. And, and let's just begin in verse 4. There, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There should not be multiple approaches to baptism in the churches. And there should not be a variety of doctrines in the churches. Now, where the Scripture doesn't speak, I think we're free to go. But when God speaks in His Word, that settles the issue. And what I've seen through the years is that demons have confused an awful lot of people and discouraged others from coming to Jesus Christ because they're able to point to how, hey, look what they do, and they do this, and you all don't even agree. How can, if you two, if your denominations can't agree, how can I give myself to Jesus Christ? Well, they exaggerate some of the differences, but the truth is, is that they use that and demons use that to keep people from Jesus Christ. But here's the goal in verse number 13. We're to have pastors and teachers and others to equip the saints in verses 11 and 12 in verse 13, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. In other words, when the Holy Spirit works among us, He unifies us in what we believe about the Bible, what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about baptism, what we believe about salvation and the church and its mission. Whenever we rebel against God, there is wild diversity where you can't unify people, and so you've got to have 12 to 18-month conversations on things settled in the Word of God. Faith, trusting God and trusting His Word enough that God didn't fumble inspiration or confuse issues so badly that we couldn't understand, will save us and protect us from the fiery darts of division over doctrine. Um, Did you take multiple choice tests in school? Have you taken those? Those were some of my favorite tests to give. They were. Um, Research has shown, however, that students do better on single-choice questions and tests. Wouldn't that be something? Instead of four choices, three of which are wrong, one of which is right, if the prof just gave one choice, wouldn't you have just loved that? I mean, Bud Kenny would have got out of the third grade if that were the case. I mean, it'd just be wonderful. <laughs> he just did the third grade twice. Thank you, bud. When it comes to getting right with God, God has not given multiple choices and alternatives. There's one choice, and that is faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's it. Because he wants you to be successful, and he wants you to pass is what he's done. That is the only hope. That happens to be the shield of faith that can make you right with God. And this morning, if you will run away from any confidence in yourself, any confidence in your virtue, any confidence in your works or performance, in fact, if you go so far as to humbly say, I'm a wreck and I'm a mess. Other people applaud me. They think a lot of me. I know I've been religious. I know I've given. I know I've attended. But I'm still not right with God. If you'll you'll reject that, that any of that could ever make you right with God and trust the death and resurrection of Christ alone, God will save you. And that's all it takes. And he's the only option. He's it. And God loves to do that. God is committed to doing that in you today. Do you know why we know that? Because he slaughtered his son at the cross and raised him from the dead. Oh, how he loves you and me. And I can't imagine sitting in a congregation hearing good news like that and not giving myself to Jesus Christ. I don't think you'll do that today. I think you will. Let's stand together and let's pray about it.
Father, we acknowledge today that so often we've been foolish in exaggerating our performance and behavior. And we thank you that there's an opportunity today to be made right with you by simple faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we pray that you'd lead us to that point. That may mean we need to reject some arrogance and religious pride. It may mean that we need to reject confidence in self. It may mean 10,000 other things, but I pray that friends today would have the movement and work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts and lives to repent and place faith in Christ, in Christ alone. Would you help them to do that today? Make it public and follow Jesus all the way. And then, Lord, for those who have, I pray that we would develop the kind of life and faith and walk with you where Jesus would be completely comfortable in every area of our lives. We pray that you would develop us even in these moments and accelerate our development to where we have a faith that extinguishes all the fiery arrows of the evil one. Now, this is the most important moment in the worship service. No one moving around, no one leaving. Today's the day for you to be made right with God. And you can do it today by simply placing faith in Christ, trusting Him. Our staff's going to be here in the front to receive you, to help you with that decision. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you'd like to do that. You come forward and do that. Maybe God wants you to be part of this church. We'd love to have you. Maybe you've done that and you need to follow Christ in baptism. Or maybe you need to give yourself anew and afresh to the Lord because you've drifted. Would you do that now? I'm going to finish my prayer. We're going to ask you to come and trust that God will move you. Just obey Him in faith. And God's going to bless you with marvelous, incalculable grace. Lord, would you do a neat work in lives today? And would you please build us into people that trust you? In Jesus' name, amen. Blessing.